everyone. Welcome to the Future Construct Podcast. I am your host, Amy Peck, and we have a fantastic guest today. We have Jason Gecki, who is the VP and General Manager at Intel for Commercial Client Software and Services. Wow, that is a serious title, Jason. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm here in Half Moon Bay. I've been at <laughs> Intel just over three years and uh, started to lead a collaboration group here. And uh, we've... Uh, been focused now on really expanding what we're doing in the commercial client, which is our vPro product, and creating uh, cloud services around that, which is really a new area where uh, Intel is focused right now is developing the software and services side of things. Uh, before that, uh, I've been at Cisco, where I led part of the WebEx group. So I'm very familiar with UC and Zoom and, and know many of the people in the industry as well. Uh, before that, I had sold uh, a startup, which was in the telecom cloud API segment and sold that to Cisco to actually create their uh, uh, developer platform for WebEx before taking over uh, bigger parts of what we were doing there. But my history has always been smaller companies, startups, earlier stage, uh, started uh, coding when I was 15. So I've been in tech for you know over 30 years, amazingly enough, which makes me older than I like to think I am. But uh, you know that's, that's been a good journey. I've got three kids and as I mentioned, live here in Half Moon Bay and uh, really into uh, photography as well. Oh, that's great. So what so what drew you to technology? Why did you start coding so young? It wasn't as cool back then as it is now. <laughs> yeah. So at the time, I'd been working since I was nine. I had a uh, paper route in, in Iowa, where I'm originally from. So I'm more of a Midwesterner uh, than uh, being out here in California. And I... Um, you know, always had some kind of a job, worked in a movie theater, things like that. And frankly, the reason I got into it is my mother told me to take a typing class. I did, got data entry, and then kind of worked my way into IT, stereotypically, kind of around the uh, the uh, the edge there. And uh, I don't want to say I, I was, you know, focused on getting into tech. It just kind of happened. And it turned out to be a great thing. It was a great opportunity, you know, uh, lots of luck in terms of timing and, and seizing that moment and then just stuck with it because it, you know, was clear it was becoming a good career. And so, you know, from there, you know, instead of kind of going in and starting with some of the bigger companies, obviously you're with, you know, a, a, a huge company now. Um, so, so why the startup route then? What, what drew you to that world? Again, a, a bit of luck. I was working for a call center outsourcing company in Denver by the name of Teletech at the time. And there was a company called Genesis that um, had started a new call center software company. Got to know them. We were their first customer. And they effectively said, hey, move out to California because I was in Denver at the time. Get a passport and you're going to travel. I said, okay, let's go. And then they turned out to be wildly successful. I'd like to pretend I saw that coming and that's why I joined it. But really, it was the travel side of things. And uh, ended up going around the world with them. Uh, really got you know out of just doing technology and then into the business side as well because I got into sales and then uh, country manager for Spain with them things like that and then that really rounded me out to uh, you know have a career you know more broadly in tech beyond even just coding. So you speak Spanish with with a, a Castilian accent. <laughs> when I do speak, it is with a Madrileño accent, but I, I'd like to pretend I speak better than I do. But I'm not that great, and it's been a while since I've been living there. I think I moved back to Bay Area 12 years ago. Nice. Well, you picked some pretty great places to live. I have to say Spain and, and Half Moon Bay. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, exactly. 
So in your in your day to day now, uh, you know, with the VPro product, and it would be great to just get a little bit more understanding of of you know this the breadth of that of that product. But what are some of the other technologies that you're seeing? You know, because really it's this confluence of technologies now. And and you know, what are what are you looking at that's that's exciting to you? Yeah. So a few things in terms of the VPro product. This is the the uh, hardware. Uh, platform that Intel has that really supports commercial or business segments. And it's effectively their top tier uh, product for security, for uh, performance, everything you need. It has the ability to do out-of-band management underneath the OS called AMT and has been a leading product uh, product in the market you know, for, I think, 15 plus years. And what we're looking to do is modernize it by allowing for cloud services to attach to what is out there, both existing install base and, and new to allow for cloud native type provisioning. Because traditionally you had to do install local software, set it up within your IT department. So we're looking to modernize that over time right now. And that's where we're focused in. Of course, for Intel, that is a, a whole new muscle we're building is the ability to do software and services as a business. Of course, we do a ton of software. We've got 17,000 developers, but it's all firmware and drivers and things like this rather than building services on top of that. And that's a big, big initiative we have right now. In terms of tech more broadly, uh, you know, where I, I find a lot of interest in what's happening out there because we're now building new cloud services at, at Intel ourselves is, you know, when I started in the startup world, it really took, you know, a team of hundreds of engineers to go out and do something. And, and you know, whether you're even embracing open source or other pieces of software, you had to build a lot of the infrastructure and capabilities yourself. Given where we're at in, in the rapidity at which cloud service and, and cloud platforms like an Azure and an AWS or a Google Cloud are expanding their capabilities, you can take a much smaller group of people and just do amazing things and get to market more quickly. So I think that evolution is continuing. It's actually accelerating. It's not slowing down or, or flattening out. And it means it's a lot less riskier to try new things. So I think it underpins a lot of the innovation that we're seeing out there because you can invest money, you can take more bets, it takes fewer resources, you can get to market quicker, test what you're doing. And it just has such a broad impact on technology that it's it's really amazing to see that happen. And I've been at the start of all of that because I started in the cloud back when EC2, which is the Amazon you know, hosting service, you know, was in beta. Right. So I feel like I've been at the start of the of watching the cloud transformation. And you know, that is very, very true that you know, we we hear about companies now moving to the cloud. Um, but then there are companies still that are that are very reticent. And it's like they, you know, they live for on-prem, they're nervous about security. Uh, you you mentioned security when you're talking about VPro. You know, what why is it important for companies to embrace cloud and you know those those who are kind of taking a back seat and and in a wait and see moment yeah so i think part of what the cloud does there for you is it gives you the opportunity especially as a you know developing new services and things like that and and what we're doing is really led around you know giving apis to third party isvs or developers and and the like is you can build in very good security once in what you're doing in the cloud, keep it constantly updating in evergreen, and then deliver that multiple times rather than having to do that in your own heart, you know, your own data center or, or things like this. And you know, on the Intel side as well, what we're doing a lot on the security side is really doing it at, at the hardware level, 
the firmware level, the BIOS level, all the way up under in, in integrating very well with the different operating systems to really you know, create a holistic ability from cloud services down to the hardware platforms to provide that security profile to do that. And that's absolutely critical. It's getting you know, more and more acute for us to do because it's not just you know, hackers in, in basements, it's nation states that are participating in, in you know, finding security issues and things like this and then exploiting them. So it's, it's becoming ever more important as arms race to, to make sure you're securing everything across the spectrum of your services and hardware. And so on, you know, on the eve of sort of looking at the landscape now with you know blockchain and these decentralized constructs, is that just adding more confusion to companies? Because you know some of them have just started to embrace cloud, and so then thinking about these decentralized constructs, the security around that is that just you know decades away? Do you think for companies? Companies, or do you think there are companies that will kind of jump on and and start building some um, of their data constructs within blockchain and smart contracts and so forth? Yeah, so blockchain, I'm I'm both involved with professionally and very interested in it personally. I feel that you know we've seen major epochs within the internet. You know, the first one being web commerce, kind of came up, crashed in, in 2000, but then came back and then you had Amazon, you know, billion dollar industries coming out of that particular uh, phase. Uh, then you had social and social networks, right? And and coming out of that, you know, you had Friendster and MySpace that kind of rise and then fell, kind of went away, but then Facebook came out and you have another you know, multi-billion dollar industry with Twitter and, and things like this. And I really think decentralized web and, and web three you know, including blockchain and, and, and DeFi and the like is, is the next phase. And, and what we're seeing is the, you know, idea that blockchain is primarily a cryptocurrency is the first crash. And, you know, uh, I've said that for a while and finally it came home to roost in, in a meaningful way, but the underlying technology and what can enable, we're just beginning to see the beginning of it. And I think it will be another, we'll see billion dollar companies come out of this that we don't even fathom just like we did, you know, Amazon and, and uh, Facebook before. And uh, professionally, some of the things I'm doing is at, at Intel, we have this idea of the transparent supply chain, where we track things through the manufacturing process so you know its origination and whether it's even been uh, you know, uh, modified somewhere along the path as it gets into the OEMs and things like that. So we've been doing that for a while with certificates and the like, but we're now creating our own blockchain where we can track that on the blockchain and, and, and make that public and traceable. And then as it goes through the further manufacturing processes, they may do the same. And this goes back to security and making sure I'm getting the unit I know I'm getting and it hasn't been tampered with along the, the path. So there's all sorts of applications that go well beyond cryptocurrency. And I think everyone should really be thinking through how it works and getting away from, you know, proof of work to proof of stake. So it becomes more eco groovy as a big part of that as well. Um, and, and, you know, continuing down that path and it will unleash a lot of different things that we just don't anticipate today. Well, you said something around transparency. I really want to take a deep dive into that because it's something I also care a lot about, uh, but we're going to take a little break here from our sponsors and we will be right back. We are back with Jason Gecki from Intel. Uh, so I do want to come back to something you said about transparency. And I am a big believer that it's kind of time to rip the Band-Aid off and, and for companies to 
have that level of transparency, not only in optimizing their own operations, but to also show how environmentally conscious they are, I think from from that level, as well as the consumer level, because I think consumers are going to start to really look at this and care. So I'd love your opinion on, you know, how, how do we get there? How do we move to this kind of new paradigm? Yeah. So, you know, going back to what I mentioned on the transparent supply chain, it's really creating that transparency to the point where you consume it the first time as an organization. But you can also then use that to say, how does it get into the secondary market? How do I make sure this has the maximum useful life uh, down to the point of when it gets recycled? Where and how is it recycled? And then being able to provide accountability and governance around that through that process. And if you're doing that all publicly on the blockchain, you need to see a point where you have the ability to transparently put in your annual report what you've done with any of the equipment you've had and used within the organization. So it's really from you know birth to death of, of what you're doing and all the sustainability elements within that. And even to the point, you know, Apple's always had a uh, you know big approach towards taking equipment back, giving you trade-ins, and they will recycle as much as they can, right down to you know, recycling the actual elements that were, are within the hardware. And how do you create that? that transparency that creates that accountability and that radical, uh, you know, capability to make sure, hey, people are doing the right things in sustainability and really maximizing everything that we're doing rather than all the e-waste that we generate right now. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, an important component is that is that origin story. And when we look at, you know, another sort of hype cycle element uh, around blockchain and crypto of, uh, of NFT, that to me is where you start to hook into the value of NFTs as well. It's it's sort of like a, a gift that keeps on giving as opposed to just using it as a mechanism for generating revenue with false scarcity. And it's just a marketing ploy. Um, you know, so you talked a little bit about, you know, blockchain and, and DeFi and, and crypto. So so where do you see that that moment where I don't know that crypto is ever going to stabilize. I don't know that we need to. Uh, we already have, you know, relatively stable fiat currency. Uh, but what are some of the things that you're seeing in that realm that you think will make it a little more palatable to consumers, especially around crypto? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, you mentioned NFTs before. I think NFTs really started as a a gamut to uh, allow whales to create liquidity. Uh, with getting people to come in and participate in cryptocurrency through collectibles, right? Again, another kind of uh, hype cycle, but there is utility there. And I think what's missing within NFTs is really identity. An NFT doesn't know it's an NFT, which creates a set of issues and how valuable it really is. And if you start tying identity to that, you start to unleash all sorts of interesting use cases and, and value. Uh, there's an initiative within the blockchain world called Self-Sovereign Identity, which is effectively thinking that, you know, California DMV could create a blockchain that includes your uh, uh, details, your age, your address, your driving status, all of these things. And when you walk into a, uh, a bar, they don't need to know all those details. They just need to know you're over 21. So let me present, you know, zero trust QR code. They scan that. They know you're 21. You move on. So it allows you to truly manage and, and govern your identity in ways never thought possible before and starting to bake these into the underlying cryptocurrency capabilities, whether it be smart contracts, NFTs, you know, within the blockchain. I think there's a lot of work happening there. I know several people in the industry focused on that, uh, specifically within Cardano, which is a proof of stake network that are really focused in that area. And I think there's going to be a lot of value unlocked because you can think about 
contingent workers that are out there in the marketplace. You know, all the big companies, Intel included, have you know vast amounts of people coming in and working, and they will move between different companies. So imagine if you could keep your, you know, employable uh, profile as a self-sovereign identity element within the blockchain and carry that with you autonomously as you move between these different capabilities and gig economy and things like this. So I think there's a, a big area of development that's happening there, which will be good. No, I think you're right. I think that it's going to unlock a lot more opportunity, not not just for those who are sort of already in the network, but, but you know, refugees, people around the world who have been completely off grid. It's sort of an opportunity for them to prove who they are. Um, also giving data Kind of a time to live as well. You know, you go to see a doctor, you just, you know, give them whatever data they need for that hour, two hours or four hours, um, and then and then lock it up. However, uh, the, the caveat to that is I'm a big believer in this, but the, the caveat is that it's work for us as consumers. Like we have to not only demand our data back and 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 have some kind of a simple interface that will allow us to manage our data, but will we do the work is, is, is the question. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. You're getting at the usability side of things. I mean, I know how to do it, but I've got to go figure out, you know, this wallet or that wallet, there's 10 different types of wallet. There's literally a thousand different cryptocurrencies. Plus your 12 words with, you know, like 10 wallets with 12 words each. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, forget it. I mean, your, yeah. your mnemonics, everything <laughs> else. Right. So it, 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 it's, it is very uh, complicated right now. And I think that that is another area where we've got to get better. And I think it's going to take a broad, coalition in the industry to do that because it's all the way down from the hardware. If you want to participate in some aspects of mining and, and in that value, you want a very easy way to approach that and do that versus right now having to do your own mining farms and really be deeply technical to get there. Same thing on approaching it from a DeFi perspective. How do you make this accessible to the masses so it's as easy as walking up and using your typical payment system that you have right now with, with uh, you know, when you walk into the store? Uh, if we can get there, it's going to unlock massive potential and really bring, you know, financial systems in places it, it's it's struggled to be at before. Uh, I know uh, Cardano is doing a lot of work, for example, the the group behind it, uh, into uh, Africa and other markets around education and DeFi and the like. And you can only do that again if you make the transactions quick, cheap, and get away from you know proof of work like Ethereum or or Bitcoin are and into proof of stake, which really you know also helps drive down the the environmental impact as well. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you know we are um, we're moving forward on all fronts. I do think that the complexity is the thing that's that's the real blocker. Um, yep. But but I do have hope that you know we we this is an opportunity for us as consumers to actually have uh, much more agency in, in, in what the, what the future looks like. Yes. So let's, um, let's switch a little bit towards, uh, you know, just you're living this great life out in half moon Bay, you're working in technology. What are the things that just excite you about emerging technology, you know, besides blockchain, you know, in, in maybe the AI realm, of course, I'm always focused more on, you know, immersive technologies, but what are some of the things that you're seeing that just, you know, are, are exciting trends? Well, one of the big trends I'm seeing is, you know, when you look at large corporations like Intel or when I worked at Cisco and things like that, there's a, a big need to continue to drive a focus on diversity and inclusion and the like. And I've been working with a group, uh, one, one of my uh, big parts of my team is down in Guadalajara, Mexico. 
And one of the complaints they've had is, hey, if I want to move beyond a certain level in the organization, I've got to move to Santa Clara, the headquarters. I've got to move to the U.S. And I think with the advent and the acceptance of broader remote working, uh, and I experienced that, of course, when I was at WebEx, but it's really become you know ubiquitous now. And things like Starlink, uh, bringing internet anywhere, is you can start to look at models where you start to develop diversity and inclusion in place rather than migration to make that happen uh, in, in various ways. Because there's all sorts of potential in remote places uh, uh, that could allow you to take advantage of you know, new insights, uh, new uh, perspectives. And, and instead of making them move, just you know, give them the technology and let them work from there uh, with all those technologies. So I think that's something where you start to seeing is this DNI in, in place rather than forcing migration into different places to make that happen. Yeah, and I mean, the, and the irony, of course, with these DNI initiatives, if you if you move someone from their hometown or home country, you, you know, they're sort of, they're losing that that connection to their culture, which gives exactly. them the perspective that you're that you're after. Hundred percent. That's exactly it. <laughs> Uh, but we're getting there. Uh, we, I, you know, I, I do see a lot of these initiatives moving forward in companies, and I, and I think you know, kind of going back to the blockchain conversation, it, it, it moves from being a marketing exercise to to becoming really endemic within companies and and to really be part of the culture. Um, right. And so, you know, going back to also to that that remote work, you know, it. It sounds like you were, as I was as well, kind of, you know, pre-kerfuffle, which is what we refer to the yeah. last uh, couple of years. Um, but now that it's really the norm, do you see that opportunity really for, um, you know, optimizing the way that teams work together? Because people say that some of the things that they miss are those water cooler moments and those just happenstance interactions um, how, how, how do we recreate those so that really remote work can have that same kind of, you know, organic interaction? Yeah. So I actually had my first remote job in 1991, right? So I've been wow. doing this, you know, forever. When I took, I think it was a 9,600 baud modem to my dorm room and continued coding remotely, right? Wow. Uh, my, my startup was highly distributed uh, back in, I think I started it in 2008, the one that I sold to Cisco. And we had people in, it was, you know, by the time we sold it, it was about 50 people. We had people in, in China, in, in Spain, in Florida, you know, really across the globe because we had the opportunity to hire people in place. And the way we created that organic uh, interaction that you'd get in the office is by using asynchronous communications. So at that time, what we had available was Skype the consumer Skype, right? And everything was done in Skype. So you could literally, you know, rove around the world. You had interactions. You'd have the water cooler room. You'd have, you know, the work room, things like this. And now you've got Slack that's come out, Teams, all of the other uh, uh, asynchronous communication platforms. And I think that's a key to unlocking the ability to truly do remote work and, and not just remote work, you know, everyone sitting in California, but really across the globe. Uh, you get into chat ops and, and these capabilities to do that. And, and you get to a point where these, these asynchronous chat platforms become kind of your central operating system to almost your team, almost the team OS, because now your JIRA tickets come into it, your chat ops, you know, all these things. And it becomes more effective because even if you're sitting in the office, that's still a better way to do it, right? Rather than getting up and walking over. Sometimes you can resolve things quicker by getting up and walking over. But you know, one of the things, you know, going back to your transparency discussion, a way to drive transparency within a team is to put everything in the asynchronous communication platform, right? Because now everyone has access at their fingertips across, whereas like email, it's locked, 
Yeah, you have to be on that distribution. Yeah. Somebody had to, to to include you versus I can go look at this channel and get up to speed very quickly. So even in in you know working locally or remotely, it's still an optimal way to drive transparency, collaboration, and organic you know uh, interactions within within your team. Yeah, and 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 I um, we took it a step further uh, at the very beginning of uh, the kerfuffle. We had uh, I was working with HTC, and they had actually built. Uh, a remote platform called uh, Sync, and so we would actually have team meetings. And there was there it was, you know, VR is still really clunky, right? And it's not an optimal user experience. But you can start to think, you know, when when the next generation of these wearables come out, that you know, actually having people appear, even if it's as a hologram, will will start to give us back a, a little more of that, even beyond the kind of asynchronous nature. And I think we we will get there as well, even with holograms. You'll just record yourself as a hologram and then it'll pop up when when somebody logs in. Um, but I, I would like to take a little step in, into the future. And I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone. So, you know, propel yourself 20, 25 years into the future. And you can have any service any gadget, gizmo, just something that makes you personally happy or just makes your life better in some way, what would it be and what would it do? Yeah. So it just so happens I was listening to a, a podcast, Absolutely Mental, that's with Sam Harris and Ricky Gervais. Great, great podcast, by the way. You should listen to it. Where they talked about what, what if an alien showed up and had all the answers? Who would you send to talk to them and what would you ask them for? And, and came up with something that I thought was was great and hadn't really thought about it that way is, oh, let's let's cure disease. But it's not about curing particular diseases. It's better to ask, how do you cure aging? And that covers a lot of things, right? So if you had a device that said, hey, I can stop aging. And it's not because you want to live forever or, or be... Uh, you know, um, immortal. It's more, I want to be 20 my whole life, however long I choose. to (laughs) I think that would be a quality of life thing and an amazing technology if we could achieve that. Yeah. I think, I think there would be people lining up for that. Uh, I I don't know that I would want to be in my twenties though. I think maybe like 33 or 34. Yeah, would be kind of kind of good because you're just well, you old enough. That you've gotten that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be able to stay up until four in the mornings, so then I go back to twenty two. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank you. Appreciate the time.